Hello and welcome to Spoken Like a Native podcast. My name is Diane. I'm an English teacher from Scotland and a devoted language learner. And this podcast is for those learning English to improve their listening and vocabulary with episodes on engaging topics like culture, current events, history and how languages work. If you want to improve your speaking and listening, head over to speakmeters.com where you can take part in small group conversations hosted by native speakers. This is an amazing way to boost your fluency, expand your vocabulary and increase your confidence by practicing with qualified, certified and selected native speakers who really enjoy helping people. There are sessions at a range of levels for English, French, Spanish and German, so book your first session today, speakmeters.com. And don't forget, you can take part in this podcast by telling me your ideas for topics. Information about how to get in touch with us is in the description. Enough beating around the bush, let's get this episode underway. Hi and welcome to episode two of the Spoken Like a Native podcast. Today it's going to be part one on a series about myths and stereotypes about Britain and British people. This is going to end up being quite a long series, but for today we're just going to cover by the way you can also get in touch with your own stereotypes don't worry about being offensive uh, we can handle it we're quite good at laughing at ourselves okay so number one i'm going to talk about is that british people are very reserved or in a possibly more negative light people from britain are cold and unfriendly number two british people are very polite number three britain is always cold and rainy Number four is that British people drink way too much to the extent of being alcoholic. What springs to mind when you hear those? Do you think, yeah, that's them. I know the British, they're just like that. But before I get into saying why you might be right or you might be wrong, I'd like to quickly just talk about something which is a, a big bugbear of mine. If you don't know the word bugbear, it means, uh, in French, it's bête noire. It's like something that really annoys you. It really grinds your gears. It gets your goat. It irritates you because you're like, it, I know it's wrong. And for me, that is when people from other countries, like French speakers or Spanish speakers, will talk about Britain. And instead of saying Royaume-Uni or Reino Unido, they say Angleterre or uh, Inglaterra. Okay, though that country exists. England is a country. However, it's not the same as Britain. So for a person who comes from Britain, you have to know where they come from before you call them English. Now, you might be very good with accents. Or you might know some information about them and say, okay, that person is from London. They're from, I don't know. Cornwall, they're from Liverpool. Okay, you know they're English. But if you don't know where they're from, you don't recognize their accent, you could be putting your foot in your mouth if you say to someone, oh yeah, you English people are like this, even if you're just making a, a friendly joke. I talk about living in England or English culture, English customs, because 
it's not England, it's Britain. And Britain is united in, in many cultural aspects. But what makes us work as a nation is that we have different identities. Even to each individual region of the individual countries, they have their own identity. I myself, I'm from Scotland. I was born in Scotland. I lived in various other countries when I was a young child. And then I spent some time in Scotland later on. And then in England, I lived a lot of time in, in England. And something that I find irritating is when people talk to me and they refer to les Anglais, los Ingleses, Inglaterra and Angleterre. And really, they're talking about the British Isles. Maybe even they're including Ireland in, in that too. A telling example of this for me, I was in Spain um, not long after the Queen died, Queen Elizabeth II died. People were referring to her as the Queen of England, but she was the Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That's the name of, of our country. It's not England. So I would give you some advice. If you can do it, please, when you're talking about British people, about Britain, please use the, the correct word. If you're speaking English, say Britain, British people. If you know more about that person, you know, say, okay, he's an English guy. If he actually is English, for example. Or, you know, in French, you want to say Royaume-Uni. And in Spanish, you want to say Reino Unido and not say England. And another reason that people talk about England is that and is that England has the biggest population, and of course um, the, the parliament, the, the government is situated in London, in the south, and there is a lot of controversy about how the UK, most parts of the UK, don't get as much power or as much money or as much attention as the southeast of Britain, so London and kind of East Anglia, Southeast area, they get a lot of funding and they're really nice places to live. Very expensive, but lovely if you can afford to live there. But there's lots of very deprived areas that don't have a lot of power or, or attention or don't get a lot of coverage in the media always. Anyway, um, English England has the largest population and it has a large proportion of recent immigrants or people who are in second or third generation Im immigrants. So when you say British, you could be talking about a Scottish person, a Welsh person, someone from Northern Ireland, or someone from England. Equally, all of those national ca categories could also be composed of a dual identity. For example, someone whose grandparents are Indian or from Nigeria, from Hungary, or from a wide range of other countries. Therefore, a large number of people identify as having both a non-UK and a UK nationality and cultural identity, as British culture has been very accepting of a big range of people, lots of different people. We have seen very prominent examples recently with figures in the UK government, such as Rishi Sunak, who's the, the current prime minister. In fact, the current conservative cabinet, so they, they are you know, a, a centre-right uh, government in the UK that's not a left-wing government, they have five out of 22 of their members are not white. So that's 23% of the current government in a country in which only 14% of people are 
non-white people. So what I mean to say by that is that Britain is incredibly diverse. And so anyone who has lived here for a long time or who was born here is British. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a very diverse country. Okay, with all of that long-winded preamble out of the way, let me talk about myth number one. British people are cold and unfriendly. Okay, or reserved. So I think most of these myths or stereotypes will have an element of truth to them. Actually, this idea about being reserved is strongly linked to point two, myth number two, about being polite, politeness, how important politeness is. What can come across as being unfriendly, so come across means to uh, convey, to communicate, to, to seem, what can seem unfriendly is in reality what British people see as being respectful of the other person and of not intruding too much into another person's business. This is particularly true within England, within the south part of England. So this apparent unfriendliness is not universal. If you go to most parts of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the north of England, you will not get the impression that people are unwilling to talk to you or to make your acquaintance. That's because in these parts of the UK, it's more normal to speak to strangers and to easily make friends. These cultures are, are more direct. There's more chatting. In Scotland, there, there's, um, there's words for these things like the, the banter, the patter, havering. We have different ways to talk about you know, the, the fact that people just talk to each other a lot. However, despite the people of the south of England taking their time to be more informal with you, so that, that is true. If you're in the south of England, it does take a few more steps to become intimate, to become really a, a good friend. This is all to do with respect. It's, it's respecting someone's personal life, their privacy. It's a very important value in England. However, being generous, generosity and kindness with strangers is a feature of everywhere that I've ever been in the UK. People are very helpful. If you ask a stranger for help in the street, people will bend over backwards to help you. So bend over backwards means go above and beyond, do more than you need to. Sure, I can show you where that is. I can walk with you there. Oh, it's over there. Let me show you on my phone. Let me um, call my friend to help you. People will help. Of course, not everyone. Uh, if you're standing in the middle of London, no one is even going to look you in the eye because there's just too many people and everyone's incredibly busy. So in the middle of a busy city, an overpopulated city, you're not going to have that easy exchange. But You'll, you will usually find someone who will be able to, to help you. Um, so the smaller places or the medium-sized city, in those places people are incredibly friendly and they will help you. So this British reserve is also known as the stiff upper lip, which is not something that most people nowadays really subscribe to, but it's a pr pretty classic trope. And that's something connected, I think, to do with the Victorian era and to do also with the, the, the First World War and the Second World War, 
where there was a lot of difficulty and people had to put a, a brave face on things and it was believed that you should um, hold back your emotions because by sharing your emotions, if you were upset, you would be affecting other people too much. And so I think there, in some ways, there is still a hangover of that idea. You know, if we really compare, okay, I, I do think that British people are not as reserved as they have an impression for, and, you know, especially in Scotland, Ireland... And Wales, people are more open about emotions. But still, I think there's definitely a hangover from this idea of the stiff upper lip and being able to keep control. So this idea that you are somehow um, polluting the general emotional shared space by unburdening your feelings. So that's, and that's not just about bursting into tears or having a, a wobbly, as we would maybe call it, when you have uh, either you scream at someone or you, you start crying. It's not just about that, but it's the idea of like, you know, if you're quite angry or irritated, you're going to be careful about showing it. If you're in, especially if you're in public, if you're in a shop or you're at work or you're with friends, and until you know someone extremely well, it's rare that you will really share something like, oh, you're a idiot, putting swear words here, uh, or I'm really, really cheesed off. You're not going to say that too much. And it, if people do that and they share their emotions and they gesticulate doing gestures, it does stand out. And it's something that I didn't really notice uh, until I had more and more contact with Spanish-speaking people, and now living in Spain, I notice it a lot more that there is a lot of uh, much more openness, much more easiness to show, oh, I'm super-duper happy, oh, I'm really, really unhappy, I'm really angry, uh, you're, you're great, or you're an idiot. In Britain, we, we tend to hide these feelings or translate these feelings through different kinds of of language structures or by just using, by just keeping things to ourselves and hoping that the other person will self-reflect and think better of their actions. But um, of course, it doesn't really work like that. But, but for us, I think we find it more comfortable for people to sit and stew in silence knowing that um, someone's annoyed about something and we kind of work out what's going on privately rather than one person exploding, because um, that becomes <laughs> very embarrassing for us. Okay, myth number two is very much related to this, okay? Um, the idea that British people are extremely polite. Okay, so it links on to what I was saying about not wanting to burden other people with your emotions if you're angry or you're really excited. It's a bit upsetting of the general peace. So there is a bit of um, an imperative in the culture to be a bit more understated. So how are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay, thanks. I'm not too bad. This not too bad is very typical British. Ah, can't complain. Not too bad. I'm still alive. You know, maybe make a joke about how, you know, everything's not 
really awful, rather than say, oh, I'm super duper great, I'm amazing, I'm wonderful, which is something you would hear more in the USA, for example. There are a culture where it's much more important or it's more valued to say, I'm doing amazing. So there's a couple of more aspects I'd like to talk about in relation to the, the politeness that make um, Britain different from other countries. So one of them is about public displays of affection. So as you probably know, when we meet people, um, new people, we don't kiss on the cheek, we don't kiss on two cheeks, we actually nowadays don't usually shake hands unless it's a business event or perhaps a job interview, you, you might shake the person's hand. But there's no, usually there's no pressure to touch anybody. Uh, there are some parts, some um, sections of society, I would say, that do like to kiss each other on the cheek or give each other a hug. You know, there's lots of different parts. As I mentioned at the beginning, we have amazing cultural diversity. So, you know, there will be people who are much more touchy-feely. But in general, we meet people we don't touch Sometimes people uh, rarely have eye contact, but that's, uh, that's possibly a bit on the extreme side. So what I found for me as a British person being in Spain and the fact that when you meet new people in Spain, you are supposed to touch them in some way, even give them a kiss on the cheek or two kisses. It's actually something that's actually really quite difficult as a British person because it feels really unnatural and I've been thinking a lot about why it feels unnatural and it's to do I think with different perceptions and different cultures of your personal space so if I go in to give you a kiss if I don't know you it's like I'm breaking this invisible barrier and I'm going too close into your personal space and of course it at the same time, I don't know you, so I'm entering into an unknown area. And, you know, for British people, we don't tend to let people in that close until we know them very well. So, whereas I think in Spain, in Italy, and I'm not so sure about France, but I think it's similar. It's this indication of, okay, we're going to be, we're going to get things off to a good start by by giving a kiss or shaking hands or something, some kind of conviviality. Um, whereas in Britain, it's more, okay, I, I, I acknowledge you, I'm going to leave you alone. Um, so you notice this about personal space if you're in a shop, for example. Um, you need something on a shelf which is next to someone who's browsing there. And you can't just reach if you're going to be very close to that person if you're going to touch them or have a chance of being close to them you should say something first you should either wait for them to finish or say excuse me can I just do you mind if I get in there in Spain I notice people will just brush go right in grab whatever they need and or if you kind of bump into someone by accident, they'll say, "Ooh, ooh, ooh, perdona." In Britain, if you kind of there, there won't be a reaction of, "Oh my God, I can't believe 
you did that, but there will be some <laughs> staring, perhaps, some sense of, oh, don't you know that you're not supposed to get close to people? Um, so that's one thing. You have to give people uh, space. If you're going to get close to someone, say, excuse me, and sort of, uh, it's a bit like an asking permission, like, do you mind if I blah, 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 can I just blah, 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 and maybe 99 times out of 100, the person's going to say, sure, okay, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry. So apologizing for that kind of thing, you're in someone's way, it's a, it's a big deal. Apologizing in general is a massive thing in the UK. You apologize for everything. And it all again, all of these things are related to not imposing yourself too much on other people. It can come across, I think, in all these examples that I'm giving, the people are a bit more in their own little world. And it takes a while for people to, to form bigger groups or, or closer relationships. But, yeah, it's a sense of when you're apologizing, you're saying... I didn't mean to affect your day in, in a negative way, whether it's, oh, sorry, I, I was using something that you needed. There's this deference towards other people, this kind of needing to be thoughtful about what other people might need, which is I think is very valuable, and it's um, something that I'm kind of quite proud of. But at the same time, it can get escalated to... Some people take it too far and they never do anything for themselves. They never ask for their own needs. And that can turn into a kind of passive aggression, either being completely passive or being passive aggressive. If anyone in the audience knows about psychology, you've probably heard about the different types of relationships that you can have. It's, kind of, it's called transactional analysis where you have either you're having an adult-to-adult -adult conversation where you're both equals, or you're having a parent-to-child conversation. No, you're not actually a parent, and the other person's not a child, but you're acting as if you are the boss and the, per the other person is a kid that you need to tell what to do. Or you're acting like the child, or, or someone treats you like a child, and the other person is, is a parent. Passive aggression is an example of that kind of one, being a bit of a parent, kind of, well, you should do things that way but without wanting to directly say um, you should do things that way or I'm, I'm annoyed at you for something. This kind of over, overthinking about what other people need, uh, putting the general good ahead of your individual need can lead to, for some people, passive aggression. It can also be like, yeah, they're completely non-assertive about things um, they don't know how to ask for what they need and then this can come out in some kind of other toxic ways um, but I think overall in general politeness is, is, a, is a pretty good thing um, yeah it varies from, from place to place another big thing in terms of the politeness is turn taking and conversations something that I've also noticed we let people speak of course, there's always different people within every culture, but if you're listening to someone, you're having a conversation with them, let them finish what they're saying before you start giving your opinion or responding with your connected story. Interrupting is kind of a no-no. 
And I know from personal experience that that is not the case in every culture. Um, in many places, it's completely fine to interrupt. In fact, it's the only way to speak is to interrupt, because if you don't interrupt, the other person will keep speaking forever. But in Britain, you just need to wait, and the person will stop after a while. There'll be a little gap, and then you can speak. So we, we like to give people a bit of space. Again, I'm just going to add this disclaimer again that I am just one person. I think I know what I'm talking about in terms of being British, having experience with British people and people with other cultures. So, But these are just my opinions at the end of the day. So if you're a British person and you really open and you talk about your emotions and you don't care about politeness and you love to interrupt other people, well, you know, you do you. Finally, at long last, let's get past the politeness, the reserve, the unfriendliness, and get to some other topics. So what was number three again? Oh, yeah. Britain is always cold and rainy. Of course, you know what I'm going to say. The truth is more complicated than that. So if we talk about the south of England, we'll find temperatures in the summer which are much warmer, much milder. I remember being in Cambridge in recent summers where it was really hot. Like uh, It was quite exceptionally hot for the UK, to be honest. But it got up to, I think, 38 degrees in the summer and all the grass everywhere was completely yellow. And uh, the UK is quite a humid country, so it was pretty hard work. <laughs> so in the south of England especially, yeah, it can be pretty warm most of the... Well, not most of the... There are, there are cold parts of the, the winter and the autumn. But in the summer it can get pretty hot and, you know, not rain for a long time. However, the further north we go, the colder it's likely to get in autumn and winter. And it won't get hugely warm in the summer either. It will get milder. So when we talk about the temperature not being too cold, we call it mild. It's very mild today. Um, and if you want to talk about it being actually being cold, you can say, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit chilly. It's a bit nippy out. It's a bit chilly today. So there's a, another couple of words you can use instead of the, the typical ones. And so when I was growing up between the age of about 12 and 18, I lived in the northeast of Scotland uh, in Aberdeenshire. And we had several winters where we were snowed in. So that's when, you know, you open the door and there's just snow outside uh, covering your door. So you have to start digging a pathway. The roads are all blocked and eventually the, the local council will come round to clear everything. And they put down, like, the the salt. It's called grit, so that you can walk or the cars can drive. But, yeah, that's after a bit of work, you know. Um, it would usually snow in, in Aberdeenshire. It would usually snow in the winter. But we weren't... It wasn't always to extremes. But yeah, I remember opening the door and there being about four or five feet of snow. <laughs> What's that in centimetres? I guess like 150 centimetres or something like that of snow. We even had a Christmas where we had a power cut. Um, so we had no electricity. And uh, I remember taking our dogs to the 
golf course, the local golf course, because it was a great place for them to run around and for us to go sledging. It's really cute to see dogs in the snow. They, they go crazy. They love it. And my poor mom had to cook a Christmas meal for six people on a set of gas hobs. So the thing that you cook on top of, if you go onto your oven, not, in, not inside the oven, but on top, where you're going to boil water or, or maybe fry something, that's called a hob. Um, so when it's, yeah, we could say it's a gas hob if it's powered by butane gas or an electric hob if it's an, uh, you know, one of those flat plates. Um, and yes, in Scotland, Wales and the north of England, probably Northern Ireland as well, it does rain quite often. But, however, I did some research quickly, nothing in too much detail. And the, the rainfall, if we take an average for the UK, uh, is the same, very similar to France. So to say that the UK is a wet country, it depends on what you're comparing with. You know, if you're comparing with Brazil or, I don't know, uh, Saudi Arabia, then of course it's, it's a very wet country. But if you're comparing within Europe, there's not much, you know, too much of a, of a difference there. But the defining feature of UK weather, I think, is that it's very changeable. So that means that it's unpredictable. You might go out in the morning and it could be absolutely freezing or it could be raining and then it will completely change within a couple of hours. So if you go out to work, you might need to take several, you know, you need to think, do I need a rain jacket? Do I need an umbrella? Or do I need something else to change into? So that, sometimes that can be a bit of a, a headache. Yeah, I remember being on the Isle of Skye on a holiday that we went on and walking around the island. And <laughs> the weather literally changed from beautiful, clear, blue sky, sunny, really beautiful. You could see the lochs, you could see the beautiful um, grass with heather and sheep and very, very idyllic and then suddenly it was cloudy overcast and raining and then a hailstorm and then back to sunny again so especially in Scotland it can really change you have to be prepared for anything so and yeah that can be I mean you might think I'm crazy but I think that's something that's interesting and I think that is why British people talk about the weather it's not because we're obsessed with it it's because it changes and it can be different in one place to another, you know. But in general, you know, as we can see in a lot of places throughout the, the globe, the summers seem to be getting warmer and the springs and autumns are getting a bit uh, milder. Right, so we get to the last stereotype for this part one about myths and stereotypes about the UK and British people. Um, British people are all alcoholics. Mm. So where does that come from? We have an image of mm, people between 18 and 25 on holiday in Magaluf or Ibiza, Tenerife, getting absolutely wasted and um, behaving pretty badly. So there are those people who do that. There's also, you know, there's there's a quite funny uh, TV programs you can watch in the UK which show like what goes on at the weekend in various 
town centers. But those are people that, that obviously that's not everybody. I think the UK does have a problem with drinking. It does have a problem with binge drinking. But is it specific to the UK? I'm not so sure. So the idea of British people drinking loads, drinking excessively, it's a stereotype which has, um, it's an exaggeration with a grain of truth to it. So most stereotypes have something true which is then exaggerated and made more extreme for, for fun or to differentiate. As with most Western countries, drinking is a major part of social life and has been for centuries. In fact, in the past, before everyone had safe drinking water, there were, the reason that we had such a thing as a pub, which means public house, is that it was a place you could go and drink something and the water that had been made into beer was safer to drink because it had been distilled than the water that you would get uh, in your bathroom. So it's funny to think about that, you know, in the sort of Shakespearean times and even later that people, most people were walking around just slightly tipsy, a little bit drunk almost all day. You know, it's not, it's not a strong beer. Um, they would uh, give something called small beer, which is very, very weak which is just kind of like, you know, having a, a cup of tea. So people would drink that instead of, um, you know, you couldn't go and buy a bottle of water or turn the tap and get fresh um, water that wasn't going to give you cholera or dysentery or something. There was a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of risk involved with <laughs> the water system, then, as in, I'm, I'm sure, in, in many countries. So, yeah, the public house, the pub... It was a place you could get something to drink which wasn't going to kill you. How ironic. So um, I think binge drinking is thought to be perhaps a bigger phenomenon in the UK than in other countries. But actually, as a, a teacher meeting lots of people from different countries around Europe, for example, um, it seems clear that among young people in almost every country getting absolutely hammered, drunk, another word for drunk, we have lots of words for drunk, at the weekend is a rite of passage in most countries. So it's something that you, you have to do. It's, it's a part of growing up is to, to drink a lot. I have left a few links in the description, which should be quite interesting if you want to do your own research about where you come from. Um, that includes one for a fascinating world map, which shows alcohol consumption marked on a country-by-country -country basis. So that's really interesting. And um, we see that worldwide, UK is slightly higher than average, but we see Obviously, the average is brought down by countries where they don't drink any alcohol at all or almost no one drinks alcohol. For example, in Muslim countries where people don't drink alcohol or at least only a tiny minority of people would do so. And in terms of alcoholism, this idea that we're, you know, we're all alcoholics, according to the data, the UK does not feature in the top 10 worldwide for alcoholism. And you might be surprised, um, or not, I'm not sure. In fact, within Europe, the country with the highest rate of alcoholism is actually France, um, sorry to say. 
So that kills the myth that we've had in the UK for a while that, oh yeah, you know, down in Europe, um, people are more sophisticated, they drink in a more moderate, sensible way. I think the, the data shows that that's not actually true. But I am not apologizing for the UK's drinking culture, the UK's drinking problem. I myself don't drink alcohol and because of that I've had to put up with to put up with to withstand to bear a lot of pressure and awkward situations from not drinking alcohol. Um, I think it's definitely getting a lot better nowadays but in in many social situations alcohol is important to allow people to express themselves and to 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 sort of like as as I said with young people a rite of passage it's something that an initiation ceremony to get to know someone you have to drink with them um so related to when I was talking about being overly polite and uh reserved it is true that I think there are people in Britain who need to have some alcohol in their system to be their true self, if we, you know, if that's uh, the right way to put it, to be more open about what they really think and to really express themselves more more freely. So that's an unfortunate fact. It's not true for everyone, of course. You know, in Scotland, people will are quite direct, uh, depending on which part of Scotland you're you're from and in there drinking is is still um, a huge part of the culture so the reason I stopped drinking is because I was noticing how toxic it was I was at university and it was impossible to socialize without getting drunk um, that was in England but I had also felt in Scotland that we are obsessed with going to extremes in terms of drugs you might know that Scotland does have a, a problem with drug addiction, drug dependency. Um, in Scotland, we are obsessed with pushing ourselves. So this is idea, I, I can handle it. So there's a, a sort of macho or a sense of, it's not, it's not only macho, but the sense of I'm strong, I can prove how strong I am by taking in a lot of substances, so drinking too much or taking drugs. It's a way to sh- to prove how resilient you are. Also, I think the the cold or slightly depressing weather in in Scotland can make that a little bit worse because it's a you know it's a way to way, a way to warm yourself up or a way to enjoy the the dark evenings if you get drunk. I think. In general, nowadays, people do have a lot more respect for those who don't drink. That's called being teetotal. So, yeah, I think it's easier to be a non-drinker nowadays. Um, you don't get the same stares that you used to get in the same sense of being an outsider, being ostracized. But I think it's going to take a long time to phase out this this part of culture that we have that's called, uh, you, you could call it a an escape valve. It's a... It's a way to just let let go, you know, let yourself relax after um, dealing with the responsibilities of being an adult. And so, yeah, the conclusion is that we don't have the worst alcohol problem 
in the world, but I still think there needs to be quite a lot of work to be done. But people are very aware of it, you know. The culture is still there. People still like to drink. But people know that it's not healthy, and I think most people are in an in internal battle. Whether that's healthy or not, we'll, we'll see. Another thing that's happening is that non-alcoholic drinks, which are very similar to alcohol, like, uh, you know, 0% beer or... You can actually get spirits, which are not really spirits. They just, you know, instead of having a vodka or rum or something or gin, you can get something which tastes quite similar and is designed to be mixed with, you know, Coke or orange juice or um, tonic water. And it doesn't get you drunk. And that's just to have something similar with a kind of similar flavor. Um, So you can see them, they're getting a bit more popular because, you know, I think if you if you're trying to stop drinking completely, and you're, if you're not an alcoholic, um, and you're trying to stop drinking or reduce it, uh, it can be an easier way to phase out the 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 real alcohol by you know sometimes drinking something which isn't actually alcohol. And there's a huge market for that in the UK. You know, health is a big topic, and people talk about it a lot. Whether it's going to work or not in the long term, we'll have to see. So that's everything for this episode. It's been a pretty epic one. Um, what do you think? What are your opinions about what I've had to say? Feel free to get in touch. Um, if you want me to answer any of your questions about English, you know, any tips and tricks about learning, where to find materials, or where you have a specific question about grammar or vocabulary, don't hesitate to get in touch. I'll be more than happy to answer your questions. And also, if you have any ideas for future topics, again, please get in touch. So, see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. What do you think about today's topic? Remember, you can get in touch by leaving a comment or by joining the Speak Meters community. Follow Speak Meters on Instagram and subscribe to Spoken Like a Native on your favorite podcast platform. You can also leave a comment and like the stream. Please, please, please leave a review. It really helps us to find new listeners who are looking for fun language learning content. And lastly, don't forget to head over to speakmeters.com to take part in live conversations hosted by friendly native speakers. That's all for today. Catch you next time. Bye.